player one. Welcome to the Gaming History Club. My name is Gabby. Hello, and I'm JP. In today's episode, we are going to get groovy, we're going to get funky, we're about to do some headspins. It is time for the history of rhythm games. Games are a subgenre of action games because it requires skills and reflex. Yeah, you wouldn't have thought about that, would you really? Like action games, because you're thinking about shooting and explosions, but no, because, you know, yeah. reflexes and reaction times and stuff. So, That's yeah, true. obviously it is action. Yeah. Games in a genre challenge the player to press buttons. Press buttons or some kind of input, right? So you might be hitting a fake drum or like strumming a fake guitar. Or touching a screen or singing into a microphone. I'm just input, I guess, in general. But most of the time we are just pressing buttons. But um, yeah, it sounds a little bit monotonous because, I mean, video games, you press buttons. Yeah. So, of course, you're pressing buttons, I guess. Yeah. That's true. I guess the point is <laughs> yeah. you you do certain action at precise times. That is the key takeaway here. At precise times in synchronization with the music, right? Yeah, or when the screen shows which button to press, basically. The game will award points for both accuracy and synchronization with the beat. So let's talk about the first rhythm games. I mean, if we want to talk history, we have to talk about the first, right? What came before video games? What was there that was the most similar before actual video games, right? That's my favorite part of the episode as always oh okay well many people refer to simon as the first electronic rhythm games so it was a handheld device created by our old friend ralph bear yes creator of the magnavox odyssey our first home video game console and a very recent episode as well that's true um together with howard morrison back in 1978 so how do you play simon so players take turns repeating an increasing number of button press sequences on the red, green, blue, and yellow buttons on the device. So imagine it like a sphere. Yeah, like a round, like a round thing, and you got the four colored buttons: mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, red, blue, green, yellow. I think most people will probably be vaguely familiar with this. You know, uh, Simon. I I have a feeling if if they're a certain age, they 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 will probably recognize what Simon is. Most people will probably forget that it's called Simon. I I have a feeling because because yeah. I kind of did. Yeah, but it's basically gonna you know light up some some colors on the thing. So it might be like blue, blue, red, and then you press. Blue, 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 red. red. And yes. then the next time it'll be like blue, blue, red, yellow. And then yep. you're going to press. Yeah, and it increases by one every time you get it right. So it's getting more and more difficult. It's kind of depending on your memory and how you press the button according to what they show in the first place. How the how the device light up, basically. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So Baron Morrison were initially inspired by Atari arcade game Touch Me which they saw at a trade show back in 1976, so two years prior to them um, releasing Simon. And I guess Touch Me is technically the first rhythm game. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, uh, it's more a game of uh, memorization, I think, uh, than mm-hmm. than music, because there's no musicality in it. it. It's just making sounds, especially Touch Me was just doing some random sounds. But I think the reason why it's still very much relevant is because that in modern rhythm games, especially when you get to like the harder, more challenging levels, um, it's testing also your memorization and your your pattern recognition, mm-hmm. actually, more than like, um, you know, like, oh, it says, you know, uh, three up arrows and you're mm-hmm. quickly doing up, up, up. Like the, the more crazier and harder the challenges get, the more you're just going to have to remember how that song is yeah. and using your muscle memory and stuff. So I think that's why it's still very much relevant to us. I, I guess in that sense about rhythm games, I'm going to quote Speedrunner Punchy here. It is mostly visual processing than like musicality itself. Yeah. Which I really agree when he said that. I also way. agree with yeah. him, but he says it himself that that's a very controversial um, thing that, he's, opinion yeah. that he has. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, so if you disagree, then blame Punchy. <laughs> <laughs> no, we love you, Punchy. It's okay. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, Touch Me gameplay is almost identical to Simon, but the buttons were not colored and the sound that it made were kind of unpleasant, which is why Baron Morrison wanted to take the concept and then put their spin on it. Improve basically. on it. Yeah, improve on it. So Baron Morrison thought the concept of the game was good, but badly executed. They added colors to the button, but how would they overcome the unpleasant sounds? Bear found the answer in a children's contents encyclopedia. He found that the music instrument bugle can only play a limited number of notes. So he decided to use those notes in Simon. And yeah, other than the notes itself, um, Touch Me was an arcade game um, and Baron Morrison decided to create a handheld device instead rather than another arcade game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As much as I like video games, if it doesn't need to be a video game like a stationary cabinet with a screen, then then don't bother, I suppose, right? Yeah, it's yeah. still a good idea, yeah. right? Yeah. So Simon was a very popular game and still is to this day. The arcade game by Atari, Touch Me, was not a hit, but seeing the success that Simon was Atari developed their own handheld version of Touch Me as well. Isn't that so interesting? Like, they, they inspire each other all the time. You cannot ever say that, like, oh, Atari stole, you know, like, uh, quote-unquote punk from them with Tennis for Two. You know, they, they constantly play off of each other. I agree. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Um, but you might be wondering, like, the name of the game, Simon. Like, where did it come from? So, the name of the game was inspired by Sentry's old children game, Simon Says. The game's origin can be traced back to ancient Rome, and actually, originally, it was Cicero, a powerful and influential statesman whose word at one time was practically law. And so, the game began. Initially, in Latin, the phrase would have been Cicero decid facoc, meaning Cicero says to do this. But how did Cicero change to Simon? So some people say it's because of Simon de Montfort. Back in the day, he managed to imprison King Henry III. So in the 13th century, they adopted his name. But you know what? That's what some people say, to be honest with you. Also, a lot of people believe that Simon is just another name that's being used because in different countries, apparently, 
they do have different name for this game. Let me tell you the truth. Simon is just a whole lot easier to say than Cicero. Yeah. And people take the path of least resistance. But back to video games. Simon and Touch Me weren't particularly musical. And whilst they were electronic games, they weren't actually like video games, right? So what was the first rhythm video game for real? And let's delve into that. And let me just uh, start off by saying, yeah, we are going to talk about Japan for like the first big chunk now, because uh, this is definitely one of Japan's babies and although in America they were going to develop their own way of doing music games independently and whilst in no shadow of a doubt were inspired by Japanese games they were both independently created and invented but the Japanese did it first and that's why we're going to talk about Japan first. So the first rhythm video game created was Dance Aerobics which was also called Aerobics Studio in Japan. And that was developed by Human Entertainment and released for the NES by Bandai in 1987. And Dance Aerobics was part of the Bandai's Family Trainer series. And it was designed for the use of the NES's 3x4 dance mat called The Power Pad. It was a precursor, as you will, to the DDR dance mat. And it had uh, a whole bunch of buttons on the mat. And it was 3x4, so uh, it would have up to 12 buttons on the mat, so to say, that you could step on. Dance Aerobics had three modes in the game. Um, let's describe them super quickly. Let's just rattle through it. In normal mode, the player must follow the motions of the on-screen instructor by stepping on or touching the appropriate buttons on the power pad as the music plays. The score begins at 100, with each mistake costing 10 points. Completed routines will gain you points, though. If reaching zero, the game is lost and you'll be told to exercise more <laughs> yeah and you can see like from this how it's telling you to exercise more the point of the game is not really for like you dancing following the rhythm or anything but it is to push you to do exercise actually for you to move yeah so to communicate to player one how to kind of imagine this you were basically told to like you know step on number seven and nine Right, and then the the little uh, figure on the screen would you know do some aerobics moves, and you follow the aerobics moves. Um, but it, it wasn't like you know step on, you know seven and nine, and now on one and three. Like it wasn't musical. It wasn't like a dance. It was aerobics, um, but it was just kind of making sure that you're doing it properly by by making sure that you stand on those buttons mm -hmm. or use your hands as well, which which you could also do. Um, yeah, there with was some exercises, right? There was no fancy music whatsoever with dance aerobics. It's still pretty um, primitive. But I think what I found really interesting mm. as well about dance aerobics, though, that it came almost after 10 years after Simon. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 So there was like a big gap until this. It makes sense dance because, I mean, don't don't forget, like a lot of the, for, for a very long time, like um, video games were really bad at making sounds, right? Yeah. Like extremely bad at making sounds, yeah. Um, let's let's uh, check out the other two game modes super quick. So mm -hmm. there was the pad antics mode. This one has three options of its own. Oh, yeah. Uh, so we got tune up, where it allows you to make your own song on the power pads. And then we had mad melodies, which presents a simple song. And there will be green dots on the on-screen power pad to show you where to step. Ditto is like a one-person version of Twister that shows you where to put both hands and feet on the pad and it gives you points for doing it properly. 
but there's no music for this one. Mm -hmm. And lastly, we got the aerobics mode. Uh, and the difference with normal mode here is that it has five, 10, 15 or 20 minute long chunks of exercise instead of increasingly difficult exercise. This mode will allow you to continue mimicking the moves made by the instructor, even if your score reaches zero. So yeah, we can definitely see um, dance aerobics was a precursor to DDR. I think I'm repeating myself, I'm sorry. But the, the focus of dance aerobics was definitely more on gamifying exercising mm -hmm. rather than actually playing a rhythm game as such. By the way, they call that exogaming, ah, apparently. Yeah. Right. Uh, some people also call it gamercise. Oh, yeah. nice. Uh, the concept was so ahead of its time, though, that it would be almost another decade again before we see rhythm games gradually developing and growing into what they've become today. Aside from a few niche and obscure arcade games released in Japan, rhythm games were going to keep a chill hop until... A rapping dog sets the scene in 96. None other than Parappa the Rapper. Yo. So the idea came from Masaya Matsura, a Japanese musician and video game designer, together with an American artist, Rodney Greenblatt. Before diving into games, unlike other game designers, Matsura has a rich background in music. He was one of the two-member band called Syce, P-S-Y-S, a Japanese progressive pop rock band. I listened to the first single, by the way, called Teenage, and it's gloriously very Japanese. It's from 1985. Uh, I'm going to leave a link in the description. Uh, it's, it's a very cool song. It's very Japanese. <laughs> it's, it's super cool, though. So Matsura pursued a concept that required players to complete levels based on their understanding of rhythm. Players would push their controller buttons based on lyrics that appeared at the top of the screen and in time with a bar moving across the screen horizontally. Each button press would make Parappa say something so that essentially players were making Parappa rapping. On an interview with Shuehi Yoshida for the PlayStation blog back in 2017, Matsura actually mentioned when he completed Parappa in gearing up for promotion, he had a discussion with the staff from Sony Computer Entertainment about how they should go about promoting the game. He remembered that many of the staff at the time saying that this is not a game. And even for him, it was not clear if it was a game or not. And he still felt that way six months after the game was released. Oh, bless him. Yeah, I, I can I can see why. Um, even even I would sometimes as a as a kid, like I think the first time I had one of them things was like press press X at this time when mm -hmm. it when it happens. I also sometimes felt a little bit like this feels a bit more like a mini game, really. Yeah, um, feels like cutie stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say it is one hundred percent a game, definitely a game. But uh, it's still one of the first ones like to ever even try and do it. It's like saying pong is not a game because it's too simple. Of course, pong is a game. Oh, it is. You know what I mean? Hundred percent. It's one hundred percent. So what's interesting about Parappa the Rapper is the creation of the characters. Um, in the game. To create the characters, Matsura turned to Rodney Greenblatt. Rodney was a graphic designer working with Sony on licensing art before moving over to PlayStation titles. Matsura briefed the content of the game to Greenblatt and asked him to draw a character that would rap for them. Greenblatt drafted several concepts and, believe it or not, 
Parappa would have been a shrimp that erupts at some point. <laughs> but they settled for the dog character as we know Parappa the Rapper today. I would have been down with a shrimp. I think shrimp would have been cool. A rapping shrimp? Yo. I know. Dope. That Dope. sounded really cool to me. Yeah, honest. yeah, yeah. I can see where Rodney was coming from here. Yeah, apparently there were so many other concepts of the characters, which is interesting. I would have loved to see all of them. Yeah. Just to see, like, if there is anything else, basically. But I'm still glad that they settled for the dog. And I think the concept of the artwork is really interesting anyway for Parappa the Rapper. I love how they're like a 2D character in a 3D world. Yeah, yeah. It has a mm. very nice art style. I think the dog makes it more familiar, I guess, in a way. Uh, whereas the shrimp may have made it a little bit more edgy than they necessarily wanted it to be. Because, you know, the songs, they're, they're kind of like lighthearted, like family friendly, you know, yeah. chill. Um, so I think a dog actually suits that better. So to talk a little bit about the plot of Parappa the Rapper. Parappa wants to learn to rap to impress his girlfriend, Sunny Funny. To practice, he looks to a lot of mentors, like the onion-headed Chop Chop Master Onion, and also Inspector Mussolini. So he did all sort of things. Learn karate, learn how to drive, and basically while rapping, to impress Sunny Funny, basically. But the point is still that he raps. According to Matsura, the pioneering success of the game was due to, in large part, to the creativity of the development team. He said, I do believe that the development process was quite unprecedented at the time, which was mostly a case of directing all the stuff's imagination. This empowerment of imagination gives tonality to various elements of the game, much like the sensation musicians experience playing live sessions. The success of Parappa soon spawned something of a movement in Japan, with a number of prominent developers creating new games in the genre. And the main developer sticking out here is 100% Konami. They created a large number of titles and introduced the idea of music games centered around specialty peripherals. The first of these projects was Beat Mania, released in 1997, an arcade game that featured a pair of turntables and a mixing board with five separated buttons in an M formation. Later, Beatmania versions would have seven buttons. Players had to successfully keep up with the on-screen indicators in order to keep the audience entertained. The player must hit the corresponding key or rotate the turntable when the icon matches the line. This will trigger a preset sound sample and recomposes the song properly, and Beatmania was also the first to play the sound effects incorrectly if the wrong button was pressed or incorrectly timed to give a sort of negative feedback for doing it incorrectly as well. Beatmania is hugely successful, but it was relatively unknown outside of Japan. Konami's game and music division was renamed to Bimani as a nod to their most successful rhythm game and created many more peripheral games for the Japanese arcade. And many of these are still active today, and these include things such as Guitar Freaks and Drum Mania that were released in 99, and they were also released for PS2 shortly after. And this gave players the chance to play guitar and drums, and they did this six years before the Guitar Hero craze started in the West. Though plans existed for release in the Western market, this wasn't possible at the time due to patenting issues. They also released Keyboard Mania in 2000, and this gave players a 24-key keyboard, and this was notoriously difficult game. 
it was actually so difficult that it's now been discontinued. Um, in session mode, certain songs were able to be played together on Guitar Freaks, Drum Mania and Keyboard Mania together if the arcade machines were hooked up to each other. Oh, so it's creating a... A band. A band. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, if the player is adventurous enough, there's a mode for um, for one player to use both player one and player two keyboards together for a total of 48 keys. Um, I've watched people play this on YouTube and... Um, when you when you look at the hands though, when they they play keyboard, it looks very very familiar to someone like just being able to play normal keyboard. Though I can see why this was so difficult because you, you might as well just play normal keyboard at this stage because it's it's basically the same um, skill sets. But but now you like having to read it off of the screen as it happens really quickly. I can understand like I don't play keyboard, but I can understand why this must have been really difficult. The game was discontinued, uh, but it was spiritually succeeded by a game called Nostalgia, which works very similar to Keyboard Mania, but the player doesn't have to hit the exact key that the uh, game says you need to press. I think it gives you like a maybe like a four-key grace window, where if you hit any of those keys nearby, it still counts. So it, it's a really nice um, combination of like, it feels like you, you're actually playing keyboard, but... You don't have to be so good at playing the real keyboard to to play the game. They also had a lot of other games. So um, they had Para Para Paradise, released for arcades in Japan in 2000. Uh, this was built around a popular dance style in Japan at the time called the Para Para. And the music was centered around the Eurobeat songs that were also popular at the time. The game used motion sensors to check if the player was recreating the dance moves correctly. Uh, they also had Jew Beat, which was released in 2007. And this is a game which has uh, squares laid out in front of the player in a 4x4 grid. And when they light up, the player needs to touch them. And it can be imagined as a musical whack-a-mole. But if you know a little bit about music, DJing, like if you, if you have like an MPC, like a drum machine, you know, with like the buttons, like imagine if they light up, you got to press it. Right, that that's what it feels like, and that's what it makes you feel like you're doing when you play this game. It's really, really fun. Um, they also had Sound Voltex from 2012. This one is kind of similar to Beat Mania, but you have four main buttons, two effect buttons. And instead of a turntable, you got like two dials instead. And the game places more emphasis on layering effects over the music than recreating the music. Also, hella fun. Looks looks hella hella fun. But there's way more Bamani games, and I don't want to list them all out here. By the year 2000, especially in Japan, rhythm games were in full effect and moonwalking across the arcades, okay? But we skipped over arguably the most famous Bamani game. Yeah, of course. Dance Dance Revolution. So DDR was introduced in Japan back in 1998 and America and Europe in 1999. Who doesn't know Dance Dance Revolution? Yeah, who, who doesn't know Dance Dance Revolution? Yeah, <laughs> I know. Yes, it's one of the best games ever. Oh, sorry. If you're in Europe, you may remember it as Dancing Stage, but you probably now know it as DDR anyway. Oh, yeah, that's <laughs> true. Again, it's the path of least resistance. <laughs> it's easier to say DDR, to be fair. Yes. Yeah. So players stand on a dance platform and hit colored arrows laid out in a cross with their feet to musical and visual cues. DDR really popularized the use of video games as a medium for fitness and exercise. 
even more than dense aerobics, to be honest. Yeah, exogaming or gamer size. I don't know which one I prefer. I would go with exogamer size. Exogamer size. Yeah, combine both. Why not, right? So DDR has a passionate fan base and a growing competitive tournament scene. There are three different playing styles that evolved from DDR. The first one is technical or attack, or you can call it perfect attack, which minimizes body movement to the minimum to conserve energy. The point is actually to do it the most efficient way as possible and still hitting that perfect score. So yeah, these players often hold onto the bar for support and efficiency, and the elite players can achieve perfect or near-perfect scores on the hardest songs. The second one is freestyle players. They would incorporate real dance routines and execute them while playing the game, sometimes even while facing away from the screen, like a boss. But they tend to play the easier modes and songs to avoid a large amount of required steps. There is this really cool video that we will link in the description. In 2006, Billy Matsumoto played DDR 5th mix, Can't Stop Falling in Love, it's the speed mix, on heavy mode while juggling three lit torches. And he did it almost perfectly. I don't know. I would say it's almost perfectly. Yes, this uh, we found as part of our research. But I remember seeing people like doing like head spins in, you know, like the the center, like where the four buttons are and stuff, and then tapping the arrows with their hands instead. Yeah. You, you also knew someone who did that kind of crazy stuff. Well, my sister was in the DDR club and I used to come together with her quite a lot. And yeah, I saw a lot of people doing all sort of crazy stuff, b-boying on like DDR. So yeah, people are doing some crazy stuff, which is really cool. There are some players that are in the middle of both extremes, basically both technical and the freestyle. And this third group is called in the groove style of play. They probably have the coolest name out of all of them though. I know, well, basically they're just casual playing, aren't they? I wouldn't call it casual, if I'm being honest with you. I'd, I'd call it, like, I, I bet you they get pretty competitive, these guys. Oh, probably true. Well, DDR is a true eSport and has community-run tournaments, as well as official Konami tournaments, like Konami Arcade Championship and Bimani Pro League. DDR holds the Guinness World Record for most widely used video game in schools. I wish my school used to have DDR. Well, talking about Guinness World Records, uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about Carrie Swidecki? Yeah, so Carrie is a teacher from Bakersfield. Um, she said, the first time I played Dance Dance Revolution in the arcade, I quickly died after 10 steps and a guy shouted at me, you suck, and laughed at me. How rude. How rude. How right? rude. I know, Oof. yeah. She said it was because she was obese. That moment set her on another course in life. She had enough with people laughing at her because she was obese and decided to fight back. She became determined to master the game and take third place in a local Dance Dance Revolution tournament to show that guy that she could play the game. That's right, sister. Mm-hmm. Carrie won third place and had lost 75 pounds. As a teacher who experienced the health benefit of DDR, Carrie acquired grants to obtain gaming equipments for students to get them excited for fitness. Even parents asked her if they could 
come with their child to dance. How nice is that? That is so cool. That is a success story, both on a human as well as on a video game level, isn't it? Yeah, that's true. She said, this inspired me to set my first Guinness World Records title to educate teachers that video games could be used in the classroom to fight childhood obesity. I decided to set the longest marathon on a dance rhythm game with Dance Dance Revolution. I wanted to show that not only could video games get you fit, but they could also give you incredible endurance as well. So up to this date, Carrie has now set 13 Guinness World Records titles. Wow. Yeah. Including longest marathon on a dance or rhythm game, playing DDR for almost 22 hours. Wow. Yep. And she also broke her own record three times between 2010 and 2012. Also in 2012, she set the Guinness World Record for the longest marathon on a motion-sensing dancing game playing Dance Central 2 with a Kinect motion sensor for 24 hours. <laughs> Again in 2013, she set two Guinness World Records at the same time, the longest marathon on a motion-sensing dance game and the longest marathon on a dance-slash-rhythm game by playing Just Dance for 49 hours, 3 minutes, and 22 seconds. Thereby, she became the only person in the world to hold a world record for marathon play on all three major dance games. Just Dance, Dance Central, and Dance Dance Revolution. Holy moly. Wow. What an achievement. I, <laughs> I like dancing games and I've never even played all of them. <laughs> I wonder if she also holds a record for having the most video game related records. Ooh, mm. that's a good one to look can for. They make, yeah. Can they make this up for her? Like, I know. Just to give her another award? <laughs> she deserves it, by the way. And she also said, to every little girl dreaming of doing extraordinary things in gaming, I want them to know they can achieve anything in their world at any age. The impossible is possible if you have the courage to chase your dreams. The most important thing is that you never give up. Ah, I want to be a little girl dreaming of doing extraordinary things in gaming. Oh, you are a little girl. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just joking, sorry. <laughs> so now that we've uh, found out the roots of the rhythm-based games in Japan, who kicked it off for us, Let's see how almost simultaneously in America they were doing their own inventions and creations in the rhythm game mm -hmm. genre. So let's talk about harmonics. You might recall that name from somewhere deep down in your memory, but don't worry, I will let you know why you remember that name. Um, so harmonics was founded by two people in 1995. They were Alex Rigopoulos and Aaron Agosi. And they met while attending MIT together. Here we are again with MIT. I know, great people, right? Yeah, it's always going to be either MIT or Stanford, isn't it? <laughs> Probably, yeah. So, this is real cool. Alex was a music composition major with interest in programming. And Aaron was an electrical slash computer engineer with interest in music. A match made in heaven, you might say. Mm -hmm. At the MIT Media Lab, they built a computer music generation system that could, I'm going to try really hard to say this, algorithmically create music. And the pair considered how one could use a joystick to control the system. After graduation, they founded their company Harmonix on the premise to enable people 
to experience performing music without learning a traditional instrument. The company was initially funded with $100,000, but for the first five years, they made nearly zero revenue. Their first product was called The Axe for PC, which wasn't a game, it was a joystick music improvisation system, where one could perform unique instrumental solos by using a PC joystick, but it wasn't able to keep people's interest for longer than 15 minutes, and that's, that's what they said themselves, those, those are their words, um, and it only sold 300 copies. However, it did lead them into a gig with Disney. So they replaced the joystick for infrared sensors to track your hands instead. So if you moved your hands higher and lower, a musical pitch would raise and fall. So with simple body gestures, music sequences could be triggered. They called this cam jam and it was used in Disney theme parks. And this now uh, enabled them to get a little bit of money and develop some video games now for real. Yeah, Their first video game was released in 2001 for the PS2 and it was called Frequency. In the game, a player portrays a virtual avatar called a Freck. I thought it's a freak. So, so it's like Frequency. F- freak you? It's F-R-E and a big Q. Freck you. Freck you, okay, yeah, whatever works. And Freck you travels down an octagonal tunnel with each wall containing a musical track. These tracks contain sequence of notes. As the player hits buttons corresponding to the note placement on the track, the sonic energy from within is released and the music plays. It just sounds cool even talking about this game, but uh, looking, I've never played this game, but just looking at it, I wish I played this game back in the day. Like, it looks so cool. I must admit it's one of the coolest rhythm games I've ever seen. It just looks dope, doesn't it? It looks really fun, yeah. Frequency allowed players to create remixes as well of any of the songs in the game. So while the player was limited to the instruments and structure of the song, the remix could include different melodies or beat lines, change in tempo and modulation of the sound of an instrument. Frequency was also one of the first games to be supported by the PlayStation 2 network adapter, back when consoles were just not normally connected to the internet yet. That was still a little bit far-fetched, but they some of them had capabilities. But very few games actually ever made use of this, right? Allowing for up to four players to play against each other, as well as to trade their remixes with each other. Harmonix had originally pitched the concept of frequency to Microsoft, but were told by now former vice president of game publishing, Ed Fries, that no music rhythm game could succeed without a custom hardware controller. And I think they took this little bit of feedback and advice to Haas, as we will see shortly soon after what Harmonix did. Anyhow, sticking with frequency, the game was critically praised and well-received, but it didn't become a mainstream success that they were hoping for. Harmonix followed up with a sequel in 2003 called Amplitude, which, very similar to frequency, achieved awards and critical praise. It had a small cult following as well, but it was not the financial hit that they were hoping for. Konami would reach out to Harmonix to create the Karaoke Revolution franchise, with Konami looking to distribute their rhythm games outside of Japan, and Harmonix being the only rhythm game developer in the West around at this time. So, Red Octane comes along, a peripheral manufacturing company, and approached Harmonix about developing the software for a game that would be based on a guitar-shaped controller. Hmm. Ah. Hmm. And inspired by guitar freaks from Japan, 
which was already very popular over there, this relationship led to the creation of Guitar Hero in 2005. And this was really interesting as part of my research as well. You may remember there was Guitar Hero and another big franchise around, right? A rock band. So Red Octane and Guitar Hero would be bought by Activision and they would continue the Guitar Hero franchise as well as the spin-offs DJ Hero, Band Hero, etc. While Harmonix was purchased by MTV Games and they would then create Rock Band series instead. So very interesting, like Guitar Hero and Rock Band, they, they were split in two, I think, after Guitar Hero 2. The team split into two different uh, franchises. It, it wasn't like Rock Band came along out of nowhere trying to steal their thunder or anything. No, no, it was, uh, yeah, They came from the same parent, basically. Yeah, interesting, yeah. Yeah, I guess by now, rhythm game scene is kind of crazy, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, definitely, that's... Like way too much to cover now. I think um, it's spread out in so many different areas, so many different games, games including like mouse as well, rather yeah. than just pressing buttons. Um, yeah, it's crazy now, right? There are so many of them. There was also a game in 2015 called Crip of the Necro Dancer, combines rhythm elements into a dungeon crawling game, merging genres creatively so ah. that's one of the crazy ones that's that's when you know like a genre has hit like a specific uh milestone when you can now combine it with different genres yeah that's true and in 2018 there was also beat saber a virtual reality rhythm game designed around cutting colored cubes in time with a song speed um it actually became the top selling and highest rated virtual reality game on the Steam market at the time. Oh, well done. Quite successful, Sweet. that's true. Um, Harmonix was later acquired by Epic Games in 2021 and worked on a new rhythm-based game mode called Fortnite Festival, mimicking the gameplay of Rock Band, released within Epic's Fortnite game platform in 2023. We hope you've enjoyed this episode, Player One, dancing through the history of rhythm games and head-spinning and backflipping and doing capoeira and all kinds of crazy dance moves. Yeah, and actually enjoying rhythm games while crawling in a dungeon, apparently. <laughs> yes, Crypt of the Necro Dancer. By the way, uh, award for best rhythm-based game title ever. I know. <laughs> that sounds very badass, by the way. But yeah, as the usual, Player One, new episodes of Gaming History Club are released every second Wednesday. So make sure you subscribe and follow us on our social media. Say hi to us by visiting our website, gaminghistory.club and let us know what topics you'd like to hear or just share your favorite video game stories with us. Come back in a couple of weeks, player one, with lots of love. Make sure you take a look at your calendar if you have a special other and we'll see you in two weeks. Mm -hmm.